0: Mr. Incredible. Do
1: you have a secret identity? Every superhero has a secret identity. I don't know a single one who doesn't. Who wants the pressure of being super all the time?
2: Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Incredibles Retrospective Series.
1: Hello there.
2: Join Matt.
3: Uh, He's a disruptive influence, and he openly mocks me in front of the class.
2: Adam.
0: Hey, I had a mohawk.
2: There's a lot about me you don't know. Yeah, but... a mohawk? Ah, you didn't miss anything. And Garrett.
0: I thought you
1: renounced superheroes. Yeah, well, I renounced my renunciation.
2: As they save the podcast airwaves by going through the incredibly popular Pixar series starring a family of superheroes.
1: That's really cool!
2: Why did Matt want to do this series?
1: This is important. They are in trouble. It's up to us, to us, understand?
2: Will Adam put away memories of glowing Apple watches long enough to cherish his time, seeing both movies and theaters?
1: Okay, come out, num num cookie.
2: And does Garrett's reputation for hating children in film continue with this series?
1: Thing is, he wants us to bring you too.
2: Find out the answers to these questions and so many more Who are you supposed to be?
1: Well, I'm Incrediboy!
2: What? All coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media.
3: Showtime. The Incredibles, released November 5th, 2004. Budget was $145 million, top end. Total box office of $631 million. This was directed by Brad Bird. We've gone from apes to capes. Or or have we, as this movie so eloquently stated? We're back for a quick detour away from The Planet of the Apes. We've left the original series behind. I'm all about, in a retrospective format, looking back on things that are celebrating a a particular occasion. And we're coming up on 20 years for this movie that we're talking about. And I was looking for a, a quick diversion it's something that'd be worth discussing, and I felt that The Incredibles was appropriate for its 20-year anniversary, and I got no pushback from either of you, so that's why we're here doing it.
0: No pushback because we fought long and hard, and yes, we did fight over. Okay, what are we going to put here? It was quite a week where we had a two-week win- We had a two-week window where we needed something to place in here. Finally, I believe it was your husband who came up with, "Why don't you guys just do The Incredibles?" And you were like, "Boom, we're doing it." And I, you know what? I thought this was a given, Matt, that you would do this because, as you've already alluded, as you've already alluded to, you know, you, you guys can give me a hard time about my completionism all you want, but you know what, Matt? When it comes to fucking anniversaries, you are right there, and so I, I'm surprised you didn't think of this first.
3: Well, I can't come up with every single idea. <laughs> But, yeah, this is coming up on 20 years. I still remember seeing this movie in a the theater.
0: And, you
3: know, Adam and I are both comic book guys.
0: Well, Garrett, I, I was at one point.
3: I was getting to that. Okay. You were a proponent of Superman in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already done Batman, so we've, we've done the two heavyweights. Now we're talking about a property that was an original superhero property. In animation, no less. Well, For... A Titan Studio, you know, they're kind of the, the the Marvel Comics of of animation, not just because they were bought out by Disney. i was gonna
0: say they're but, all in the same window now.
3: <laughs> we got a lot to talk about, but Adam, I'm gonna ask you: when this was coming out, you know, you're a you're a comic book guy, and you know, you've mentioned you were not on our Toy Story shows, unfortunately. What was your excitement level going into The Incredibles?
2: When it originally came out. I was mid-twenties and I was dating the woman that would become my wife. I was a fan of Pixar movies. Seeing it in a theater, I didn't rush to it. I was a little too old. I didn't have kids. However, it was a superhero movie. And that made me excited because Hellboy had come out the same year. Um, they're both... <laughs> hey, you scoff, but they're both 20-year anniversaries this year. Mm-hmm. But that when that first trailer dropped, and I was like, okay, well, you know what? I love Pixar movies, and, oh, they're doing a superhero genre, and it looks like, Haws we'll discuss it it's in the movie, and the art that it looks so art deco, which was such a cool look to it. The people who had talked about the director had done a movie that I know is huge, and people adore that I've not yet seen, sorry folks, um, in the Iron Giant. So, to me, it was Pixar putting out a new movie, because... For me, pre-Disney buyout of Pixar is some of the most amazing films, period, that have been made. I think there's a clear demarcation after Disney bought the studio. But I love pre-Disney Pixar in a huge, huge way.
0: Uh, the Iron Giant is the best performance you'll ever see out of Vin Diesel. I'll preview that movie by saying that. He's not wrong. That's
2: what, I, that's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've heard that, it, that he is phenomenal he is
0: and as far as i go you know when this came out i was the same you know me and adam went to high school we're the same age this was coming out it was getting a lot of hype a lot of people said a lot of great things about it but i did not have kids like adam and i was kind of just going through college and this flew right over me i had no intention of seeing it people had told me it's great I don't remember if I had rented it or if it came on TV. I don't remember how I saw it initially, but I watched it and was just, you know, I wasn't even close to being floored by it. I thought it was a lot of overhype. Now, this was back in, you know, 2007, 2008, around that time. I could give two shits about the Incredibles. The sequel was coming out. I believe I saw the sequel. I don't remember, honestly, if I have or haven't. That's how memorable The Incredibles is to me. But I do know it's very well loved. It's looked at as one of the best Pixar movies that they that they, that they have ever done. And with the 20th anniversary coming up, I, I did feel like it was time. Okay, let me reassess, but I'll go ahead and say I went into this kind of the skeptic where, all right, it was hi- overhyped before. There Be- was oh, some distance behind it. Let's see if it is actually better than what I initially remembered. Well, as an 11-year-old kid when this was coming out, I was the target
3: demographic. <laughs> yes, you were. For sure. But I couldn't tell you if it was because it was a superhero movie or because it was Pixar. Like Pixar was the... Starting back in 1995 with Toy Story, their movies were events. It, it, people who were scoffed at animation gave Pixar their their time of day. And this was still Pixar at a time where they were... I don't want to say they, they had the biggest of clout, but they had made, let's see, Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo. So this was their sixth or seventh movie in the production line. And Pixar... To talk about this movie, this was the first time they hired an outside director. Mm -hmm. Everything else was directed by people who were already embedded into Pixar's studio. They worked their way up the system, and a lot of the animators became directors like Pete Docter, Andrew Stanton. But Brad Bird was a friend of John Lasseter, who used to be the big heavy at Pixar. As you mentioned, The Iron Giant was
0: his directorial debut. And that movie did not do well financially. No. And I didn't realize he actually had kind of a resume before too. I mean, now Brad Bird, his—I mean—he did a Mission Impossible movie, and he's done a few movies since. But back then, he—he he didn't really have much clout, as you mentioned. You know, the Iron Giant was a debut feature directing debut, and it, it flopped pretty hard. But he did do a a, a couple amazing stories episodes. You know, his his career does go back a ways, and I I was not expecting to see that when I looked when I dug up his IMDb and I was looking through it. So he does have some clout even before he did Iron Giant. He was also classmates with both Tim Burton and Henry Selleck. Yeah. You know, it's funny that
3: we just talked about Planet of the Apes, so another Tim Burton connection. But Brad Bird started out as an animator at Disney. He had credits on Fox and the Hound and the small one. He did some work on The Black Cauldron, but he never got a credit for it. And he was kind of burned out. Yeah. He was burned out by... American animation at the time. You know, the 80, the mid-'80s was kind of the low point of Disney's animation. You know, the Black Cauldron lost in the box office to the Care Bears movie. And they were about to really condense their animation studio, but Little Mermaid kind of ironically saved their animation line and put it into better heights. But Brad Bird said, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with Disney. He went to go work for Spielberg. You know, he co-wrote Batteries Not Included. Worked on The Simpsons, so he- He worked on Captain
0: he, EO too, by the way. Like, he's been yeah, he, around. Yeah.
3: He had his hands in a lot of different projects, and he kind of worked his way up to The Iron Giant, where Warner Brothers wanted to compete with Disney. Kind of like Marvel versus DC. But, ironically, Warner Brothers were the people behind Mask of the Phantasm. That did not do well financially. Uh-huh. Iron Giant, unfortunately, befell the same fate, despite getting phenomenal reviews and word of mouth. It's still a movie that's looked upon very fondly 24, 25 years later because they chose to promote Wild Wild West
0: instead. Ride that Will Smith train.
2: Damn John Peters. Right.
3: (laughs) So in the late 90s, Brad Bird reconnected with John Lasseter. And he said, you know, if you ever want to come in and work for us, do a movie for us, you know, well, the door's open for you. So he came in, and he pitched The Incredibles as a retro superhero type of movie to honor his love of 60s comics and also spy films that he grew up watching. Pixar said, okay, but let's bring him in. But as I mentioned, Brad Bird being an outsider, a lot of this movie was made by his team that he worked with, the Iron Giant. Like, he brought them on. And it was a real partnership between Pixar and Brad Bird.
0: Yeah, very unusual for Pixar to do that. I I think I saw something where he mentioned that, you know, he kind of mentioned to Pixar, look, I I do need some help on this, but bring your cast offs pretty much like bring the people that, you know, I want to work with people who have some ambition and not just people who are here to animate what I have here. You know, he he, he took ideas from a lot of people. And, you know, it's funny when you talk about the development of this. And it did go through a lot of development hell. People talk really fondly of it now. People who worked on it. Because it was a massive success, obviously. This was hell. Brad Bird put them through a lot of shit throughout the course of this movie, which I'm sure you're going to get into. But it was was a real chore to get this movie done. You know, as we've found out, you know, over the years, unfortunately, that John Lasseter also did in a very bad way. This was really, really a tough go-around for a lot of the animators who worked on it. That seemed to be really big at Pixar for,
2: for a lot of the things, you know, when you delve into really the deep, kind of as you were saying. And to me, that almost, to me, hones the way that Steve Jobs ran companies because you remember at this time he had taken Pixar over from George Lucas. You know, Pixar started as a, as a Lucas, you know, as a way to, to get into the computer animation Then yeah. they were making commercials. So to me, that's, you know, the Steve Jobs way of we're going to pay you this, but we're going to work you to the bone and we're going to pay certain people exorbitant amounts of money to not do much. And it felt very Apple mm, at the time, good point. you know, including the way that it looks and it did things. You know, I used to work literally two blocks from three blocks from that gate, that our gate in Emeryville. And we would have a lot of the people come over to the store that I worked at to buy computer parts and pieces and cables. And all the stuff. And they were some of the nicest, friendliest, real gregarious type people. But, yeah, that place worked. And it's it was that old school Berkeley, you know, not too far from there, that feel. That mm-hmm. that studio that's going to do something different. And they would work all nights. And, you know, look at the, uh, the creation of, of ILM documentary. Some of the heart and soul that went into that is definitely here at Pixar. But the animators, the people who did the grunt work on this stuff, worked themselves to the bone.
3: Well, working to the bone was also a necessity because this film marked a lot of firsts for Pixar. As I mentioned, Brad Bird, first outside director. But this was the first film that Pixar ever worked on where all the main characters were people.
0: And yep. you know what, Matt? Years ago when we did Toy Story, we talked about the fact that, you know, they could do those toys very, very well, but when it came to people... They sucked at it. You know, this is put it out there. And that was a huge thing going into this that kind of kept me away was, I don't know what Pixar can do people. It got better, as we talked about with the Toy Story films. They definitely perfected their craft. But
3: doing a film of all people was a huge challenge for Pixar, especially with full computer animation. You know, originally, when Bird was pitching this, it was going to be 2D cell animation. But with how Pixar was moving... They said, Let, let's do it in computer animation. Brad Bird's sole screenwriter on this as well. First film in which all the, the, the characters are human, as I said, but that creates a challenge because you're having to animate hair, which is notoriously difficult to animate, clothing, fabric, and it's a superhero movie, so you've got to put in action, which is also a tremendous challenge. So there was a lot of inner working parts to make this movie and it definitely burned some people out, but he got the ultimate endorsement when Miyazaki, of all people, visited Pixar. Yeah. And he saw the reels, and Bird's like, is this just American nonsense? And Miyazaki said, I think it's very adventurous what you're doing. So with that endorsement, I think that gave them the confidence to keep going. And it was a, it was a long production. This was years. Mm-hmm. And remember, Pixar, at this point, they were putting out a movie almost every year. Mm-hmm or every two years. It was like, if you watch the Pixar Story documentary, they celebrate the box office take of Monsters, Inc., and then they introduce Andrew Stanton to direct Finding Nemo and say, get to work. It was a constant cycle. But when the movie was actually done, it got some of the best reviews Pixar has ever gotten. I mean, that's a high bar. You know, you look
0: at the the Toy Story movies, you look at Finding Nemo,
3: but this also
0: made a shit ton of money. Yeah, over 600
2: it absolutely did, and this was one that you could license out massively. You know, the Toy Story obviously built into the toys and did that market, and, you know, uh, Finding Nemo did somewhat, but you were kind of limited in the way that you could do certain toys. This one was massive in the way of not just box office and not just, you know, the, the credit that it was going to get from awards, but you could sell This movie, Inside Stores, and that has become something that almost now sadly has become synonymous with the way that Disney, since the buyout, has been doing things, but this thing really, you were able to go into stores and buy Mr. Incredible, and Dash, and Mrs. Incredible, and an Omni Mover, and all these other things that were in this film. And that just blew this thing up. So the budget is, or the profit, box office, 600 million and change, 633, I think, and its profit on the back end is just giant freaking
1: mm-hmm.
3: it was also you know we talk about retrospect superhero movies at this time they did not come out every single year
0: they weren't coming out at all well, dude. <laughs> like, well, yeah we had Daredevil well, and we had you know certain things that were coming out but Marvel wasn't at its natural height we wouldn't have Iron Man for another what four years
3: no but you still had you had the success Spider-Man. of X-Men, X-Men,
0: Spider-Man yeah oh that's right Spider-Man 2 same year. year yeah you're right
2: yeah, same this year. Was, this was such an influence that what was supposed to be a major movie the next year had to go through a series of rewrites and reshoots you know, just because of this film. They say
0: that, but I feel that's a cover story for the fact that the Fantastic Four movie was a bad movie. So I I I plead the fifth on that.
3: Which one? Because that applies to all of them. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's true. Yeah, we're talking about the 2005 one with uh, Jessica Alba. That's just a bad movie all around. We haven't reviewed it yet. We're going to get to that eventually because I know my my two colleagues really want to talk to me about the 2015 one, which I worked on. But I I think that's just a fucking cover story that the studio threw out there. And not as bad as people think it is.
2: We'll get Uh, there. I would
0: hot take. We'll get there.
3: Yeah, says the guy who likes uh, Hellboy.
0: Yeah, put a pin in that, <laughs> sir.
3: <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned, you know, came out, did Gangbusters, obviously won Best Animated Feature, but this movie got a screenplay nomination at the Oscars.
0: Yeah, big. Which was
3: that's un, that was like unprecedented at the time because I don't even think either of the Toy Story movies had done it at this point. I know the third one did.
0: Well, then the, no, the first one got one. So the first one got one for Best Screenplay. Toy Story. Yeah, the first Toy Story in 1995. Yeah. Okay, so
3: so it had been done before, uh-huh. but you know, it, it was still kind of taboo for for that to happen because mm-hmm. Brad Bird said said something very interesting that I think is a great summation of animation. It's a style, not a genre. Having best animated feature is kind of a derogatory exclusion where it's like, yeah, we'll recognize you, but you're not going to be in the big boy field mm-hmm. until you get your Beauty and the beasts and your Ups, but. I think he's right. Animation should be looked at as a style of making movies, not its own genre. Cause you have various genres within animation. You know, and this is a, this is a superhero movie first and an animated movie is just how they told the story. And to be honest, there's certain, thi- there's certain things in this movie that at the time you really could not do as well in live action.
2: At this point, what constitutes live action as opposed to animated? You know, I'm sorry, but look at every Spider-Man movie that Disney Sony has put out combined. Every single time that you see Spidey doing something Spider-Man-ish, guess what? That's animated. Yeah. You but know, that's completely CG. So what, what, so is the only thing that is that demarcation line having a live action actor in it? You know, look at something like Ant-Man Quantumania, that pile of trash. You put four actors in front of the volume and everything in that movie is animated, other than your actors acting in front of a green screen. Separating out animation, and to Matt's point, making it seem like a lower category, is just insulting at this point, where every studio animates as much as humanly possible, other than having an actor scan their head. And look at Downey. You know, he has a head, and he's got a mocap suit. The only thing he has that's on screen is his fucking floating head. You know, (laughs) so it's just to... To denigrate animation is insulting to people who just love movies in general. To me,
0: yeah, but you know what? To go on Matt's point, that was a little bit of a deterrent from having me watch this movie. Was the fact that yeah, we had had Spider Man, we had had X Men, we did have all those, and now you're have you're having Pixar release of animated movie about a super, superhero family. Why not do that in live action? That's all I thought while I was watching this. Like, I had no qualms about just ignoring a movie about a superhero family that didn't want to put live action. Actors in it and make it work on screen. They felt the need to animate it, and that was something I w- I kind of rebelled against, and was a big reason why I didn't watch it for years after it was out. And I hate I to it,
3: but it's still a genre that is looked upon as just kid stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and I in think
2: the same way that comic books are. You know, yeah. it's I'm sorry, but you got some of the most amazing stories told in a graphic medium, but people will. Ignore it because it's a graphic novel, because it's in a comic book, because it's sequential art instead of printed words with no pictures. And I think animation suffers that same way. I mean, look at the first Spider-Verse film. Did that deserve Best Picture nomination? Absolutely. Was it going to win Best Animated? Yeah, of course it was, because they weren't going to recognize it in a Best Picture because of the studio that it came from.
3: Well, that's the thing. You look at when Beauty and the Beast was nominated for Best Picture – A lot of that, I think, was because it was revolutionary in animation, with the whole ballroom sequence, Uh, on top of just being a great fucking movie. But it wasn't until they expanded the field to ten nominees at a max that you started seeing animated movies actually get nominated for Best Picture. Granted, they had no chance of winning, because, look, Toy Story 3 lost to to the King's Speech. Which movie has had more staying power in the 15 years since? I rest my case. Uh, And I say that as someone who didn't love Toy Story 3, but... (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, you know this, and this was the movie that, of all Pixar's movies, this was the one that fans were most clamoring a sequel for. Yep,
0: yeah, and they wouldn't get it for what? 14 years? Is that? Hilarious? Yeah,
3: 14 years. Wow, that's a long time. It is. I mean, they shit out, they shit out a Cars sequel like within four years. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, speaking of shitting things out, let's get into this movie. <laughs> I can't Garrett? <laughs> or, or do I? <laughs>
0: that, is, that is the weirdest transition I have ever heard on this show.
3: No, that's how I feel about the
2: cars.
0: Man. Oh, okay. Gotcha.
3: Is oh. that the line of demarcation you were referring to? <laughs> 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 it's, it's,
2: it's, oh, sequel, 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 sequel. <laughs> ah.
3: So we open our superhero movie, not with a big action sequence, not with them saving the day, giving testimonials about the nature of secret identities. Uh, with this old, it's shot with this old grainy type of texturing. You're introduced to Mr. Incredible, Elastigirl, and Frozone, who are sort of the three of many established superheroes. Because this takes place in a world where superheroes are public. There's a ton of them.
0: And they're loved by the general public. Yeah, well, you mentioned Frozone like he's a big part of this movie. He's not. <laughs> but we we have a little introduction here. And it's something that when I look at this movie, and we talked about Fantastic Four earlier. This is Fantastic Four, right? I mean, we we have Mr. Incredible. he beat be the thing. We have Elastigirl. Like, all of these are represented. We'll have the Human Torch later. I have no idea how Marvel didn't sue after this movie was out, because it well, is kind of derivative of those things that Marvel had already done. Well, yeah, I mean... The I
2: mean, sued was DC. Yeah.
0: They yeah, definitely, for Elastigirl. But I will say, when I thought about it, and I thought about the way this movie's introduced, I... Came to the conclusion, like, this is not a superhero story. This is a satire of superhero stories. And when I thought about it like that, and I took this movie for what it was in the beginning stages here where they're talking about their identities and things, I was able to kind of relax on that and think, okay, where are they taking the satire here? Because that's exactly what we have here.
3: Well, I think this movie does a lot of things. It is a satire. It's a tribute as well but it's also a this is a movie about a midlife crisis at the end of the day yep. and, and that's what
2: family and a man trying to find himself
3: yeah and trying to balance the past but also embracing the future which let's talk about the voice actors you know they got craig t nelson and holly hunter not people who <laughs> were people they were they're actors like they're not voiceover people and i think that's why a lot of people responded to this movie so well is that the voice acting they're giving actual performances like they're not just putting on voices and doing wacky
0: voices like they're they're acting I uh.
2: (laughs) i think that's one thing that pixar has done well and i think they're one of the only studios that have done really really well is they get actors but they get vocal acting performances out of them and i do think there's a difference between and i don't mean to keep harping on this but i think it's obvious and i think as we do more of these it'll be more so i think Pixar does that better than Disney. I think they do that better than, than WB and Sony and anybody else who gets an actor because they want the name on the poster. And when that actor comes in, all they're doing is reading lines in the same voice that they would talk to TMZ in. But I do think that Bird and the other vocal directors get a
0: performance
2: out of these actors. And I think that is some of the most impressive parts because you don't always get that with, non voice acting specialists.
0: Adam is reading my exact notes that I have written down here (laughs) that I was going to talk about is the fact that yeah it's exactly right they don't cast based on marquee value You know, you're not going to sell a movie based on Craig T. Nielsen. You're not going to sell a movie based on Holly Hunter. You're not going to sell a movie based on Sarah Vowell. They cast for characters. They cast for performance. And, you know, when you hear these voices come out of these characters, they're not the guy, the people who are voicing them. They are these characters. And, you know, we go back, Adam, I'm sure you remember when I worked at the video store, they did a Hercules movie. Disney did a Hercules movie with Brad Pitt as the voice of Hercules. That movie bombed. The only reason they cast Brad Pitt was for his marquee value. He brought nothing to that character. And Pixar has never taken that route. And I've always respected them for that. And when I look at this movie and I look at who's been cast and I look at the performances that they got out of it, including Samuel L. Jackson, who obviously doesn't read a script that he doesn't fucking turn down. They all bring something very, very vibrant and very pleasing to their roles. And, yeah, I've always respected that about Pixar.
3: Garrett, you're when thinking of a- you're thinking of Sid, Dad. For the record, that's the Brad Pitt one, and that was uh, that was DreamWorks. Oh well, okay, but you, you Her- get what H- I'm H- saying. H- yeah, but like you look at Disney, they got big names: Robin Williams for Aladdin, Danny DeVito in Hercules, where he's just playing Danny DeVito. Pixar. This was also the first time they did not have a comedian as one of their leads. You know, Tim Allen in Toy Story, Dave Foley in A Bug's Life, Billy Crystal in Monsters Inc. Ellen DeGeneres and Finding Nemo. Your two leads here are just, they're they're performers. Like, they're not known for being overtly funny or they're shtick. And I think that's why so much of this movie has an authenticity to it with the voice acting.
2: Yeah, the thing is also, when something's not working, they'll change it. With Brooks and Finding Nemo, you know, he was brought in at the last moment because they just could not get the voice of Marlon right, you know, and Now you look at it, and he's like, oh, that's so perfect. Yeah, because they work on something until they get it perfect, or at least they did.
3: Yeah, And I'm not trying to discredit what Disney or DreamWorks did, because it worked for Eddie Murphy and Shrek, where There's moments where it's great,
2: yeah, and I think that's different.
3: But at this time, you know, look at the movies that Disney was making at this time. Home on the Range, fucking Roseanne Barr is your lead voice. Atlantis was Michael J. Fox well after he was a star.
0: I saw it in theaters. (laughs) <laughs> you and about six other people yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: But, but yeah i think the voice acting is one of the one of the things that really stands out in this movie and it, they also have distinctive voices like you know immediately who's talking absolutely holly hunter has a very distinctive voice
0: mm-hmm.
3: so does craig t nelson and, and there's obviously sam jackson i can spot him out of a
0: lineup isn't it amazing that the two holly hunter movies we have reviewed so far are Super- both superhero movies <laughs> It's <laughs> unbelievable to me. Remember, with Sam
2: Jackson, we're talking 2004 Sam Jackson. Yeah. We're not talking Nick Fury yet. No. So he's a voice and it's amazing and people like us know Sam Jackson. People would recognize him. But to make him this kind of role, I think other studios would have been hesitant on. Mhm. Same thing, yep. with, same thing with Holly Hunter. How are you going to get someone to kind of talk, you know, out of the side of her mouth and, and has a little drawl? There's no way most places would be willing to go with that, but it works fucking beautifully. Mm-hmm.
3: So they're talking about, you know, the importance of superheroes having secret identities, which is one of the hallmarks of the genre, to the point where Marvel said, all right, we're not doing secret identities because it's it's a relic of the McCarthy era. Elastigirl's talking about how we can't leave the saving of the world to the men, and nobody complained about this movie being woke in two thousand four. No. If they released this. If they released this movie now, there would be tons of articles about about that one scene and that one
2: line.
0: And Mary Sue, absolutely. It, yeah.
2: It starts out with it being woke, and it never. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. Bunch of Mary Sues. Oh yeah.
2: So
3: they're talking about the superhero cliches of secret identities and using it to attract fame. Next scene after the title card is Mister Incredible on a chase. Where he does also the most cliche thing when you think of superheroes. He saves a cat from a tree. Yep. Against its own will, because that cat really doesn't want to get down from that tree.
2: I love that we can actually think about this. In 2004, okay, 20 years ago, it, superheroes were enough in the zeitgeist that you could lampoon it and and show a reverence to it at the same time. That was before the day we're in now of 20 years of nonstop superhero movies. This thing does it with such a a love and care, but still also, with a tongue-in-cheek of it, knows where to poke and make fun.
3: Tongue-in-cheek without going into the winking at the camera or the meta, you know, subtext. Like, it's here. It is a love letter, but it's not stopping every two seconds to say, ha-ha, notice that?
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, guys, we talked last year about Superman, you know, where he rescued a cat from a tree in that first movie. That's exactly what they're lampooning here. You know, isn't the name of the town, it's kind of part Metropolis, part Smallville, isn't it like Metroville or something? Metroville, yeah. Yeah, there are winks and nods, which I did like. Unless you're really, really, really paying attention, you don't need to hear, you don't need to see or hear these Easter eggs to enhance your enjoyment. But if you know it and you hear it, and it it makes you smile, then it's done its job.
3: Mr. Incredible kills two birds with one stone because he uses the tree to stop the robbers that were involved in the chase. And he does the classic, like, George Reeves. So for me, i think of faking the cops.
0: And can I also say I really like this opening action scene. Like you mentioned, Matt, we, we do get, you know, this little interview that we're getting. You know, it's going to set up exactly why these heroes are as down as they are in a few minutes. But when we open up and we're seeing the POV of the police, they're going after these robbers and things. This is good stuff, man. And it's really good to watch on a big screen
3: and Brad Bird with the Iron Giant he had a retro aesthetic for that movie as well Mm -hmm. you know this animation is a lot like the silver age of comics especially with the character designs Mm -hmm. like they're very straightforward costumes are relatively simple but yeah I I love how he gets in the car and his self-appointed number one fan is already in the car this (laughs) this teenage boy buddy who was modeled after Brad Bird without his knowing and then they were so far into
0: production that he couldn't change it (laughs) that says a lot about how this <laughs> that says a lot about how this studio was at that time. And this is voiced by Jason Lee, a guy who, you know what? I know one of the people on this podcast was a huge fan of I was not a big Jason Lee fan, but I like what he does with this character. You know, he has a really huge line later that is still used to this day. I enjoy Jason Lee in this movie and I don't think we get enough of him.
2: Yeah, I think he really shines just as much as the other actors do in this film yes i would be the fan as the kevin smith fanboy that enjoys him as bruce and as Azrael and as so many other things so yeah i was also excited to see jason lee in this i was like hey cool but it he does come across it really really well like, he delivers not just walking in into a to a booth and supposedly he only Recorded at the very end and only for like two weeks, but he brings some credibility to this role as his Buddy. And both as a kid and as he grows up later, I believe him.
3: And this is such a great like for people who hate Robin. This is the ultimate example of why <laughs> they don't like that character. You know, he's overzealous, <laughs> over enthusiastic. He's got the bright outfit that looks like target practice, and Mister Incredible is just done with it. He's like, "Look, I've signed every scrap of paper you put in front of me." And much like Robin, though it's the whole thing of. Just because I don't have powers doesn't mean I can't help.
0: What I like about this character is what they eventually do with him in that on the surface, it looks like he's looking for domination. He's not looking to dominate the world. He's not looking to take over the world. What he's looking to do is to make more heroes, so that he disgraces the Incredibles even more. I find that to be a really nice bit of satire on the superhero drama and comics. And we even have some Bond here as well. You know, we we talk about the fact that this is spoofing superhero movies. It's also spoofing Bond in a very loving way. And uh, you know, they tried getting John Barry to do the score of this, and he turned it down. But Michael Giocano. I'm not a huge fan of his scores. I don't like maybe one or two of them. This one, it gets the job done. I think it has enough homages to Bond to kind of, you know, make us smile. But I do like the fact that they're not just spoofing superheroes. They're also spoofing spies. And I do like what Buddy's plot ends up being. Yeah, so I'll save my
3: thoughts on Buddy once we get to the second half of the movie because I think there's a lot there. Buddy leaves them behind in a less than friendly type of way. And once again, they're going with the... Ultimate superhero cliche of stopping a robber who snagged a purse. Yep. We're introduced to Elastigirl, where this is sort of the Batman-Catwoman dynamic. Very
2: much so. Uh,
3: she tells him he needs to be more flexible, which is, God, I thought this was the, the, the Jules Schumacher era. And then we get something that the superhero movies don't really comment on, and I think this is brilliant. What happens when you save somebody who doesn't want to be saved? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yes and every time they try they don't do it well there's there's a marvel comic series called damage control where it's all about the company that has to come and clean up after you know cities get destroyed there was a show that dc did um with alan Tudig a couple years ago that was in the same it was the insurance company and how they cover it so there's they've tried but never done it really good and i think this just hits it really really just on the nose and there's been lawsuits like this. That's the amazing part. If you stop someone from committing suicide, you're liable, and it's just, it, yeah.
3: Yeah, the, the Good Samaritan law doesn't really apply here, but he saves someone, from, Mr. Kribble saves someone from jumping off the top of Nakatomi Tower,
1: <laughs> and
3: he's like, oh, you should be thanking me, and then we're introduced to... Now look, I love puns. It just makes me laugh every time. Bomb boy.
0: <laughs> yeah, they tried getting Dom Perion to lend his name and of, and of course he turned them down because he's Dom Perignon. And also, to go back to the purse snatching thing, I went to San Francisco with a friend of mine and at one point a woman Great. did have his... Uh, hey, at this point it was fun. I was like <laughs> 20 years old. At one point a woman did have her purse stolen and he went and punched the dude in the nose to get the purse back. Guess what? He fucked him up and the guy ended up being sued and Adam, you know exactly what I'm talking about the guy ended up being sued and yeah it ended up being a bad thing to save this person you know to get this purse back being disgraced for being a good samaritan is a real thing and i like how the incredibles plays on that
3: we're introduced to bob voyage complete with obscene french accent dressed as a mime like this is sort of their joker of this franchise yeah buddy shows up buddy shows up once again and the question is okay how did he get all the way up there we see that he's got rocket boots so this kid is sort of the super genius Type of sidekick. Mr. Incredible, once again, not having it, saying, I work alone. Also a Batman reference, basically, until he adopted teenage sidekicks do his never-ending crusade against crime. Bomb Voyage puts a little bomb on Buddy's cape. Mr. Incredible tries to stop him. The bomb lands on an elevated train track, so Mr. Incredible has to stop it. Five months after Peter Parker did the same thing
2: yeah and, and it's crazy because these go into production so many years mm-hmm. you know in advance and they're storyboarded in the end I mean the animation sequence is longer than an entire film product live action and it's crazy how much some of these just start mirroring one another
0: amazing that they both came out the same year and it's pretty much the same scene but you know what it works in both films you know I, I, it works here I, yeah I, I like I like the way this is done.
3: Yeah, it's just amazing coincidence. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's not like the Incredibles ripped off Spider-Man. It's not like Spider-Man ripped off the Incredibles. Like, it just kind of happened.
3: They assess the damage. He tells the cops, I have to go because they talk about secret identities. Yeah, what happens when superheroes actually have a commitment to go to? So
2: think, you know,
3: and that's a Spider-Man thing.
2: Yeah, like they're, some of those best Spider-Man comics when you get into is Peter Parker having to be somewhere. And constantly letting somebody down because, you know, do you save someone or do you arrive? It's, it's why you don't let superheroes get married. Put a pin in and that for just about 30 seconds. You know, and why Marvel and DC for the longest time, other than one or two, have a rule that you can't let them get married. Cause you take that away.
1: Yeah.
3: And as Adam said, he's late for his own wedding. But I love how she's like, you forgot. I I was kidding when I said prior engagement, and they they cut to the crowd like it's a private wedding with, you know, you see the other superheroes. I mean, talk about lawsuits. You got a guy who looks exactly like Cyclops. Exactly. She says, you know, we got to make this work because being superheroes and raising a family don't often go together. And he goes, what could happen? And, oh, this is great. This movie does Watchmen better than the Watchmen movie
0: did. That was a surprise coming into this, because when I watched this initially, yeah, I had read the the Watchmen graphic novel, but it, it, I had read it years before. Didn't really put it together. But we also have to remember, boys, this is the first Pixar PG-rated film. And you know what? It deals with themes that adults could understand. And it's probably something that would go over kids' heads. And the good ones, and we talked about this with Toy Story, Matt, the good ones do that, but do it in a still enjoyable way. I had completely forgotten they did the Watchmen thing. It's being done in a very good way. It's being done in a way that homages. Whether intentionally or not, it does homage the Watchmen. And I, I found, I, I had completely forgotten about that.
2: Yeah, I think it's completely intentional. I think he knows what he's doing, but makes it enough of it still feels in this universe it doesn't feel like The Incredible suddenly went to Alan Moore. If you know it, you're going to appreciate it. If you don't know it, it doesn't take away from it. And then, in retrospect, like as we've discussed so many things later on, you go back to it and you're like, "Oh, I can see so much more now of what's going on."
3: Yeah, and if you've read the comic, you'll see the there's a frame that they use where they're animating the crowd burning the stuffed superhero pinata. Yeah, or figure that's directly out of the Watchmen comic. Mm-hmm it's the same conceit where the government puts in a superhero relocation program where superheroes are banned from using their powers and they have to become, you know, private civilians but they get amnesty for their past crimes. I love how they use like hand-drawn animation like for the courtroom pictures. It's great economical
0: storytelling for this prologue. Yeah, you mentioned economical storytelling and I've been very complimentary to this movie, but I will give it a big ding, which is the fact that I think it's too long. This movie is almost, almost clocks in at two hours, and I think to say what it has to say, I get it. You're trying to make them domesticated and then put them back out in the superhero world. I get it, but I think this—don't you guys feel this movie's a little too long? I don't. No good movie is too long. <laughs> no bad movie is too short. Well, yeah, that's the I, old Roger Ebert line, but I was feeling it by the end.
2: I understand what you're saying, and I think maybe there could be a little bit of pacing issue throughout. Like, I, I get it. And I think because of my affinity for everything they're doing, even the moments where I say, oh, you can speed that up a little bit. I never feel bored. My enjoyment doesn't wane. And the moments that I think are slow, it hits me with the adult parts of it that make me enjoy it even more.
3: Yeah. I think it's one of these movies that I've gained a greater perspective on it as I've gotten older and I have my own family. I still kept my love for comics, but I think it's one of those movies that for me has gotten better with age it's beginning of aging. We cut to fifteen years later, and Bob is, you know, not in a great spot. He's not saving the day. He's working as a claims adjuster, <laughs> but he's exploiting as many insurance loopholes as he can. So he's still putting up the good fight.
0: Yeah, look where it's gotten him. That's the that's the sad thing, and that's the thing about we, we talk about it with superhero movies all the time. We're going to talk about it when we get to Marvel eventually. How far down do these guys? And girls have to go before they have to bring themselves up. And here we have Bob, who's been disgraced. You know, they've, the government's taken away his power to save people. He's trying to do it. But look, he's still on the low end of the totem pole. And, you know, Matt, you are very big on when it comes to people being shown the lowest of the low. How are you feeling as we see Bob here? He's at the lowest that he's gotten.
3: I think it's it's an appropriate spot. But I also like that he's still life has worked out in the sense that he's got his family like he's not living by himself. Or, obviously, this is a Pixar, so he's not going to be an alcoholic or anything of that sort. But I like that he's clearly desensitized and and dissatisfied with where he is, but is still doing his best to help out the little person, who is not his boss, voiced by Wallace Shawn, who comes in and berates him. He's like, how is it that every single person you write a check for, you hear their soft story?
1: Yeah.
3: And then cut to his wife, Helen, who is on her way to the principal's office because their son, Dash, according to the teacher, put a tack on his desk but his video footage does not detect it (laughs) because he's too quick. Dash is Johnny Storm. Like, this is the the most um, blatant of the Except he runs really fast instead of flying.
2: He's Quicksilver, but he's Johnny Storm. Yep, because we're going to get Johnny Storm with the other kid. And
0: Smallville was doing a lot of what they're doing with this character here around the same time where Jonathan Kent was trying to convince Clark, look, you can't play football because you're going to hurt the other kids very badly given what you have as powers. And, you know, we're not having Dash play football here, but he is a runner. And what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to say, look, you can't do that. You cannot run because, you know, you're going to give us away. I, I do like that dynamic. I do like that they're doing these things with this boy. And all of these characters are going to be, they have humps they have to get over. And if you're going to do it for a little boy, this would be the one to do, you know, as a, as a kid, you want to beat everybody, you know, but they're trying to teach them, you know, the moral of not having to do that. And I kind of like that.
2: And yeah, you're that precocious little kid. It's a Christmas song. I put a tack on teachers' chairs. Somebody snitched on me. Yeah. Like, it's, it's perfect that he knows he can't be caught, so he's got that smart ass little grin, and mom knows. It's, 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 yeah, I love it.
3: Yeah, it's that kid of ultra competitive, but you you also have to be an upstanding citizen and be fair.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's
3: also the Spider Man thing where he talks about, yeah, I'd love to play football, but I can't. Mm-hmm. It's like my powers. We're also introduced to to
0: Violet, who is the oldest daughter, who is the,
3: much like Peter Parker, the the nerdy outcast.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and from what I read, like the hardest part of their animation was to get this hair right. They could not get this long hair right. And uh, this is a character who literally has to come out of her shell. She is somebody who does force fields and she literally has to break out of those in order to become who she is. In the beginning, she's wearing dark clothes. She's moping. And by the end, she's wearing bright pink. And she is an uplifting character. And the journey all this family has to go through are very well done you know this is something i did not notice when i watched it initially um i was looking at it as something that was completely complimented as being just the perfect superhero film slash satire and when i watch it now i notice that these characters all have very well drawn out arcs yeah the one with violet is perhaps my favorite just the fact that you know she literally has to come out of her shell and she does by the end and and uh, this is her introduction
3: It's also brilliant. Every teenager wants to be invisible at some point.
0: Of course. Again, right off of Fantastic Four.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, all the power sets are here. Mm -hmm. They're just interspersed. And because the Fantastic Four in comics, they were the nuclear family. They were the first family of Marvel Comics. So it makes sense to do that here at a time where the Fantastic Four did not have a good movie in 1994. And they still have not 20 years later. So this is the best Fantastic Four movie that has yet to be made.
2: As someone who has a teenage daughter it i mean it's obviously you saw this 20 years ago and i was like oh yeah that's perfect those are those high school teenagers yeah this is my house <laughs> 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 it's amazing how as i get older and i watch this and when we go to disneyland because Disney can't stop mucking around and ruining California Adventure. So it's now Pixar <laughs> here for that entire area. And Incredibles is everywhere at California Adventure. And we lead into my, <laughs> to my oldest child and just poke the bear. Just like, shut up. It's not funny. Uh, it's not dad, bruh. Come on. It's just so on the nose how perfect this is.
0: Do you wear your suit like Mr. Incredible does? I guess not. Um. <laughs> no, but I do bring the mask. <laughs> Nice. Does it still fit, or is it like Mr. Incredible? Where you gotta, you gotta,
3: you <laughs>
2: to go, oh, that's that's my spare tire that he's got going
3: on. <laughs> I love the next thing is him in traffic in this tiny little compact car. Yeah,
0: yeah. The animation here. Let's talk about that. You know, they they did a different pattern with this animation that they've normally done with Pixar. This is different where their close-ups are usually close-ups of their clothes, so they don't have to really outline their clothes as much as they normally do. And I like the fact that these characters are really either really disproportionate or they're so skinny that mr incredible is so big yet he has the skinniest waist and i like that though that they're saying something with the dichotomy of way they animate this film
3: yeah well they they draw the women in this movie like marvel comic like dc comics has drawn catwoman and poison ivy where they're Mm -hmm. they're so razor thin that if you turn them sideways they'd be transparent Mm -hmm. gets home trips on a skateboard as we have all done at some point in our lives if you have kids Mm Trip over some shit, and he dents his car, picks it up in frustration, but there's a kid right there to witness it. The kid pops the bubble, and it's just awkward silence as he goes back in the house. Next scene is the, you know, the, the, we're really seeing the family dynamics where there's also the baby Jack-Jack, who does not have any visible displays of power, at least yet. We see that Mr. Incredible is kind of disillusioned with his you know, paternal involvement because the mom has to do all the disciplining to the point where when Dash it's revealed he went to the principal's office, he turns the conversation into how fast were you going? <laughs> Which anyone who's married knows these kind of conversations. I can't wait.
2: <laughs> oh my God, so much so. It's <laughs> a father being proud. <laughs> what's going on
3: here? <laughs> You're proud, but it's also like not the circumstances are not great. It turns into a big shouting that between the kids where they, they start showing off their powers. Bob has to go in the other room. He sees one of his superhero old compadres is missing, which is a through line throughout most of this movie that superheroes have been disappearing.
2: Right back to the Watchmen.
3: Yeah, in, in, their, in their private lives as well. He quote-unquote intervenes, but they're interrupted by Frozone showing up. with uh, they, they found a freeze pond that Batman and Robin did not use with Ice of view to drop in.
0: A.K.A. Silver Surfer. He's Man from
2: the X-Men. Iceman. But, yeah, Silverstone, I can see that, too. But the way that he comes in and out is so much like Man from the animated series more than the movies.
3: Yeah, especially with how he rides on the, the wave, the ice wave. Yep. That's straight out X-Men. But any guy relates to this. When you go out with your buddy for, quote, unquote, beers. <laughs> and I love how his wife is just like, yeah, yeah, it's bowling night. Say hello of honey. What do they do? They sit in their car. We live in the glory days. Like he's talking about the the cliched speech of the
0: villain monologuing. Beautiful. This writing is razor sharp, and you know it's it's very it's another thing very unusual with Pixar. Matt, you mentioned that Brad Bird's the only credited writer. I'm sure, as I've mentioned a thousand times, there are. Once over is done on the script, especially at Pixar, especially with John Lasseter at the helm. This thing went through a lot of hands. But the writing from Brad Bird here, and you could tell this was a passion project of his. You know, this is something he'd been working on since the 90s, and it has evolved. And I like the fact that the project has evolved to this is exactly what Samuel L. Jackson's commenting on is everything that had gone on from the 90s until 2004 in the superhero genre is everything he's outlining here.
3: Yeah, they're talking about the glory days where yeah. it
0: was the the old
3: school superheroes of it was formulaic. It was the villains always had the monologue and the heroes saved the day. But Bob yearns for the old days to the point where they're so desperate to, to be heroes that they, they save people from a burning building that leads them into a jewelry store. <laughs> and he has a great line of why don't we do what our wives think we're doing for once just to shake things up. <laughs>
0: And this sets up, you know, Frozone... Is this when he drinks the water, or that's later, huh?
3: No, that, that's the scene. Cause oh, he, that's the scene, okay.
0: Yeah, this he sets has
3: up... This moment where
0: he's like, you know, it's evaporating too fast. What does that mean? It means it's hot! Yeah, yeah.
3: I'm sure they had to edit
0: out the word motherfucker, but... Eh, uh, even in PG-3 Pixar, they're not going to say that. No, I'm sure they had to edit it out. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: I like this, like, it's got some intensity to it, and it's just the, you know, why can't you do that? Because it's hot, Bob! You know, it's, you feel like these two are in a room together going back and forth, and that's not how voiceover is done. But, man, it feels like it is.
0: Nice little homage to a movie that I know Matt hates that we'll talk about eventually, but to Die Hard 3 when the cop's sitting sittin here. He's trying to interrogate him. He's like, put it down, and he's like, I'm trying to get a drink of water. Like, it's taken right from a scene in Die Hard 3 when he's uh, when the cop has a gun pointed at him and he's at a payphone. Just a wonderful little homage there. Mm-hmm.
3: Speaking of, awesome. speaking of Sam Jackson.
0: Yeah, that, exactly. So he manages
3: to convince the cop to let him have a drink of water, and he uses that to freeze them to make their escape. And we that the cop that tries
2: to shoot the black man.
3: Yeah, the cop tries to shoot the black man, even though he's got his hands up. <laughs> we see that they're also being watched by a mysterious woman in a car where Frozone is the target of interest until they realize that Mr. Credible, because he's gained so much weight, they just call him the fat guy. <laughs> They're like, yeah, the fat guy's still with him until they realize it's actually him. The married Man also knows when you're out late, you got to be as quiet as possible, but your significant other is still awake and asks where you were. I love this movie so much because they actually have, like, adult conversations about parenting and responsibility and, you know, how to properly raise your kids. Like, there is a true intermarital conflict that the movie's talking about. It's not glossed over.
2: True, and, you know, we've, we've hit on it a couple points about the writing and the relationships and that... I think that every Pixar movie up until this point I think has been a family or kids movie that have got enough jokes throughout and is enjoyable enough that adults can have a good time when they're taking their kids. I think this one starts to move a little bit more to this is a film made for everybody or even made for that older audience that kids will enjoy because it's animated and it's got superhero action. But the story in this is not made for a 10-year-old. Matt, you were 11. You obviously enjoyed it huge, but the themes going throughout are definitely designed for that older audience.
3: Yeah, it's it's one of the why Pixar was so great for so long was that they made films for all ages.
2: Yeah, used to.
3: Yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll make a good one every now and then, but it's no we're no longer in the period where every movie they made was like, oh my god, this is the best thing ever. They're shouting loud enough to wake the kids, but they go back to bed. Next day, Bob is sent to his boss's office, and he sees a man being mugged, but his boss tells him to ignore it, and it escalates to the point where he does what a lot of us who have had bad bosses want to do, literally throws him through a wall.
2: <laughs> Close. <laughs> Might have bumped chest, but...
3: <laughs> Bob's offered another relocation service from the guy who looks like Tommy Lee Jones who leads this uh, like superhero relocation. He's like his agent or his point of contact yeah. when he says, you know, I'll deal with it in my own way gets home and he sees that the same woman who was following them in the car left a recorded message for him this is straight out of mission impossible in the imf
0: complete with like, ipad yeah
3: and the self-destruct
0: button. yeah ipads before they were even a thing this was fun stuff again we're not just sending up superheroes here we're sending up spies we have some bond and here we have mission impossible this is the most blatant homage i think
3: woman mirage which is i don't know how james bond never used that name for a bond girl because that's such a great name it is and she tells him that she has a mission to take down this droid that's been running rampant on the island without destroying it and if he does he'll be financially compensated so bob you know desperate to relive the glory days does this at the drop of a hat basically
0: i think this movie does a good job of taking the disgrace that bob is feeling and really having us feel that yes This has been itching to come out for 15 years, and here's this, you know, for an animated character, very sexy woman coming up and giving him a mission, and of course he's going to take it. We haven't talked about it yet, but there's, you know, there's a, a lot of scenes in True Lies that really, as good as that movie is at times, there are times when that movie can be really cut down because we go into infidelity things and things that you know have really no business being in that story until the the real action hits here we are going into that whole thing of infidelity as well you know later on and this is incredible is going to find a strand of mirage's hair we're going to play with that a little bit but it doesn't go too far in. Him. not as much as i remembered i think when I watched it the first time, I think I remember this playing a bigger part in the story than it actually does. But it's all it does is really, you know, it's a springboard to what Mrs. Incredible eventually ends up having to do in her mind. Yeah, she does catch him later on in, <laughs> in a very uncompromising spot, you know, that looks bad. But for the most part, they play this card pretty well with a very sexy character.
3: Yeah, and his wife would be ignorant to not assume infidelity based on... His cover story, losing weight.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm going on a business trip and it turns out that the business, you know, he has been he hasn't been an employee for what, like two weeks or something. Yeah.
2: When your better half starts changing themselves and you don't know, how, you know, they're not they're doing it but it's not with you it things start to change. And, you know, the stories don't add up. You know, so on her end it makes sense. On his end he's getting a chance to do things again. You know, that he's always wanted to do because he wants to, he wants to feel like a man again. He's got his family, he's got his kids, he's got a job that he doesn't like, now he doesn't have a job. He, he wants to be who he was, he wants to be who he was when she fell in love with him and they got married. So there's, there's a lot, sorry, I may be projecting a little bit. <laughs> I was gonna
0: say, is this a therapy session? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, it's, it's amazing how much, you know, now that I'm in my forties, I'm like, damn. Like, yep, check, check check like it hits so many boxes it's amazing just how years later decades later it still holds up
3: he tells his wife he's going on a conference for work after they're blow drying all the books that got wet because the smoke alarms went off with the the (laughs) self-destruct button So he goes to the island, he's dropped down, suit doesn't quite fit like it used to, and he fights the Droid, which is a giant, basically a giant Droidica from Phantom Menace.
2: Yeah. That's <laughs> yes, what I always thought.
3: Where it's a self-learning robot, as he's told, so he's got to beat it quickly. But eventually they wind up, you know, in a nifty fight sequence. You know, this is one of the things where animation, at the time, a lot of superhero fights were... CG-enhanced borderline rubbery, like the the Raimi Spider-Man films, when it's not actually, like, fist fighting. Yeah. And then you had crap like Blade Two, where it's shitty wire work and pro wrestling. I mean, he gives a fucking vampire a suplex, for God's sake. But he throws his back out, because he's been out of the game for a little while, but the, the robot puts it back in place when he's stretching him, and he goes inside, and the robot beats itself to death.
2: I could use a robot to stretch me out and just pop my back that way. I'll, <laughs> Talk I'll, about I'll, getting off adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> so
3: he successfully does the mission and he's being watched by Mirage and her quote unquote boss who invites him to dinner in the Blofeld volcano lair from You Only Live Twice.
0: Exactly.
3: <laughs> she says, My employer is not going to be joining us tonight. Hope you understand. We get the montage as he comes back. You know, he buys new cars with the money, spends more time with his kids, he's losing weight. He's got his own Rocky montage where he's working in the pulling trains and because that's the question like how do superheroes work out because they can't do conventional weightlifting you would think so he's like lifting trains and running with them on his back he's bench pressing a a bus
0: yeah bench pressing a bus that was the one that caught me boy matt second retrospective in a row that we have a montage here what are you trying to say here
3: (laughs) well no superhero movie would be complete without a montage that's true he's not saving people that's the thing he's he's saving himself and his family but his suit has a tear in it, and he has to go get a new one. He drives up to the this this mansion, and this little short-haired woman named Edna doesn't recognize him at first because she goes, oh, my God, you've gotten fat. But <laughs> <laughs> goes inside. And this is Brad Bird's other contribution to the movie because he provides the voice work here.
0: Yeah. He asked somebody who told him, you know what? You don't need me. I You, you do the voice just fine. I think Lily Tomlin, I think, is who I read was going to totally online yeah know. and yeah this this character i i adore this character i do remember little things about the advertisements of this you know when it, when it was being released it was kind of shoved down our throats you know disney pixar at that time and still to this day actually they'll you know they're, they're everywhere you go pretty much and uh this was a big part of that advertising this character this the director nonetheless was a big part of it but you know what i love this character that's the thing mm-hmm. this is something i should rebel against you know why 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 are we trying to sell a movie based on this character but the more i see edna the more i like her i could have used more of her actually i don't want this movie to be any longer obviously as i've mentioned but more of this character would have been nice (laughs) to kind of help the movie flow a little bit well she
3: leaves you wanting more i think that's why why, that's why she's a great side character but wouldn't necessarily lead a movie and she's also his cute positively yeah for the bond but she's like i used to work for supermodels but that bored me and she says you know i'm gonna make you a new suit but no capes
0: Big famous line from this movie. You know, I, I do remember that being a, a big takeaway that people were quoting after the movie was out.
2: You'll still hear it today.
3: Yeah. Not only is it quoted, it plays into the ending of the movie.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: It does.
2: Like she explains why, and it's literally there. It's a lot of stuff is set up. A lot of lines that are dropped earlier in the film come back and play off by the end, uh, especially with Buddy.
3: And That's it's, also the great. The question of with superheroes, why do they wear capes? Batman is the only one where they explain it helps them glide and like can deflect bullets. But so much of everyone else, it's uh, just artistic.
0: Well, Missus Kent did make Superman's cape.
3: <laughs> well, that was done for the line. Don't tug on Superman's cape. It's there for the it's there for the line.
0: No, there's some symbolism well, in it. There's a way. That there's things about the mom sending the son out in the world with the last piece of clothing you know she's the one who made the cape in the stories i read
3: adam notice how anytime garrett talks about superman it's with such enthusiasm but he doesn't give a shit about any other superhero. well (laughs)
1: meanwhile
3: adam and i could give two shits about Mm
1: -hmm.
3: superman but i love how uh it's like one, one person gets stuck in a jet turbine, sucked into a vortex, stuck on an elevator shaft. Like, it's all these practical things that theoretically could
2: happen to superheroes. And that goes back to Watchmen, where there, I want to say, it's one or two panels where I think it's a dollar bill. Gets, he's chasing a bank robber and his cape is stuck in the revolving door. It's a tiny little thing back in there that it, that it goes to as well. And it, it makes so much sense. But you have comic creators now. They'll put out new designs for characters or new suits and whenever it's not there, you'll, you'll get that quote and be like, Oh, we're going to do this different. No capes. You know, it's a bigger controversy than trunks or no trunks anymore.
3: Yeah. And she says, All right. I'll make you a new suit, but I'll also fix the hobo suit as she calls it for sentimental reasons.
2: <laughs> I like that she also knows the family. Yeah. You know, that this expands it because she's, she's been involved and this is somebody who also is out of that world now, but is living a different way. It's just. Subtle little differences that really populate this world beautifully.
3: And she has the same thing Bob does. I want to go back to the old days where I was working for superheroes, not supermodels. Yep. Yep. Bob goes back to the island with his new getup, which is the, the red suit. Basically the you know, these are the Fantastic Four jumpsuits. Mm-hmm. Except they're red instead of blue. Bob comes back though and gets his ass kicked by the new Omni Droid. And we're reintroduced to Buddy, now all grown up. Calls himself Syndrome, and he's the ultimate rejected, the ultimate example of why you don't reject crazy people.
0: (laughs) Now, Matt, this was originally going to be another character, right? Didn't they switch out the? Yes. Yeah, Syndrome was
3: going to be a minor character.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: There was
3: another villain called Zarek who was going to be the main villain, but they were condensed or combined. I mean, I I think this works better. Like, I like that there's only. There's only one central villain in this movie. And I like how he is, he is Dr. Doom, where he's all about technology, doesn't have any superpowers. But I like that he's not, he's got the Lex Luthor thing, where he's not about world domination. Well, most Lex Luthers, thank, thank God this one does not want anything to do with real estate. But he's the attention grabbing when it becomes dangerous. And he's the, like, the, the man child who wants recognition and respect that they feel like they deserve, not because they've earned it. And it's the great thing of, okay, how do, why do we have supervillains that don't pose a direct threat to the heroes from a physical standpoint? Because of this, because of the, you know, how he adds to the idea of damage that superheroes cause.
0: I still think this is the best Pixar villain that they've ever done. I haven't seen enough to make that determination.
2: I'm hard-pressed to think of a, to think of a better one. Because, yeah, I think it's so well-written. His rates on death Rev makes sense. And the way he's going to go about it absolutely makes sense. It's a twist that you don't see coming. And then it's amazing because you don't get this a lot in these kind of films. But Buddy's, it, his his plan is socialism. It's communism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Buddy's a socialist. He wants everybody to be the same.
3: You so he's a mandarin. So the mandarin.
2: <laughs> exactly. We talked about woke with our last series. I guess this would be the anti-woke. <laughs> if you want to be an idiot about it. But there's just, there's something really smart about that. You brought up about Buddy B and Robin earlier, and here you know, a reflection. He's not just a reflection of Robin. He's Dick Grayson in the way that he's just that, gee, golly willikers, and he wants to follow around his hero. He's Tim Drake, that he's an absolute genius when it comes to technology. And he's Red Hood, and that he's going to absolutely kill to get what he wants. Like, he's an amalgam of all the Robins at that point, and I think that's overlooked and really smart.
3: Yeah, and like I said, he's got the Doctor Doom thing of technology. He's got the brain of Lex Luthor.
2: All tied up in a Bond villain of his own base and yeah. and monorail system and everything else.
3: That's yeah, a great job at Disney with the monorail system on the <laughs> island. But I also love that the, you know, because you mentioned it's a twist. I actually don't think it's a twist. It's a reveal, and I think there's a difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, yeah
3: you yeah. a twist. and Di- Pixar made up and Disney for that matter, there was a period where they did nothing but twist villains that didn't work. Frozen. Zootopia, Moana, Wreck-It Ralph, uh, not Wreck-It yeah, Wreck-It Ralph kind of does it. Big Hero 6, where it's like, they re- th- the twist is, oh, this person you never suspected was the villain. This is just a reveal.
2: It's a reveal, yeah, yeah.
3: Is
0: Wreck-It oh. Ralph Pixar? No, it's Disney, okay. but no. I know a but lot it's of... Disney
2: doing, it's Disney. Disney doing Pixar.
3: Because, <laughs> like, Coco has a twist villain, too. And Up has a twist villain. I mean, the movies before this, Prospector, that's a twist. Water Noose is a twist. This is a this is a reveal. I think it's a little bit it's it's a little bit different, but I still think it's as effective as they've ever done. And he says he he, he got caught monologuing like the supervillains they were talking about previously, but he catches himself.
0: Great, great line. I love that line. Because all bit, villains yeah. in these films do it. Hell, they still do it to this day in these fucking movies. I, I this was amazing. And it's so good that you would
3: think it's an improvisation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's delivered very well. But he, he knocks Bob
3: into the water and he survives in this little cavern by hiding in the bones of a dead superhero. Oh which, yeah, I also love that this movie death is a reality. Like it's not something that's fabricated. People die in this movie. Yeah. Like there's actual consequence for a Pixar movie, which is crazy to think about. What I like about this
0: is it was set up earlier because Bob and Frozone talk earlier about somebody in their clan who is they can't find him. Well, here he is. Wonderful. Re- this is another one. Wonderful reveal here, and another example of good writing in this film.
2: Yeah, and just the darkness of this part here with with Cyclops' geyser beam, and that while he was down here being killed, but he made this message. Just feels just not dirty in a bad way, but just you know that that's dark. That's the kind of thing that's going to go over your head as a five, six, seven year old, but.
0: Is sharp when you can realize it later. Again, PG rated. You know this is yep. this is pretty yep. pretty big for a Pixar film to do. Speaking of sharp-eyed,
3: we cut to Helen, who observes that Bob's framed costume has a stitch in it. So she immediately knows it's Edna. So he calls her on the phone, and she has to use her secret identity name of Elastigirl for her to get excited. <laughs> She's like, it's Helen, you know, and she sighs, Elastigirl. No,
2: no, Helen.
3: And so she goes to see Edna, and it turns out that she's made costumes for the entire family because she assumed that Bob was not doing this on his own. And th- th- there's this great montage where she's got the Q-Lab of, like, the-, the suit that can withstand heat, the one that's bulletproof, the one that stretches. And Helen's like, what do you think the baby's going to be doing? Jack-Jack doesn't have powers. No, Well uh, that's fabulous anyway.
2: And it set, it, it's a reminder, because we haven't seen the kids really do a lot of their powers in the last, you know, 30, 45 minutes at this point. It's a reminder of what their powers are. It shows up what they're going to do. It brings the suits into it. Like, this is all, it, it it all serves the story. It's not just a cute little scene, which it is, and it works. And if you go into a theme park and you have this cool little thing of their outfits, that's going to work for you. But it's servicing the story.
3: And the surprise that Helen is completely oblivious to Bob's new life to the point where she doesn't even know where he is. We cut back to Bob on the, the Spectre base. He has to sneak through the lava by using the statue. And talk about lawsuits. They fucking stole Cerebro.
0: Yeah, I thought of Cerebro, too. That's in my notes.
3: And it's the long corridor. It's the empty room. There's the computer in the middle. Yep. So uh, I never
0: need to see again. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and Bob realizes that Syndrome has murdered dozens of superheroes over the years, perfecting the Omnidroid, where his master plan is to send it to Metroville, you know, make himself look like the hero, and Helen activates the homing device unexpectedly, so Bob is captured once again.
2: Maybe this little action scene of this this gunk, this goo that's taken up. Man, the, the editing, the frantic back and forth and back and forth as he's running, trying to do it, and then just... Ending with a zero in on Mirage's legs coming in. Fuck, this is just, man, the action works just as well as any action piece.
3: Helen is brought to tears because she thinks it's not just superhero. This is where the infidelity comes into play. Yep. And Edna is the one who's like, pull yourself
0: together. Yeah, Edna, again, Edna lights up the screen every time she's on it.
3: Helen takes the costume home. Dash sees what it is. He's like, oh, my God, we get cool outfits. Like, he's finally, he's like, oh, we finally get to be a superhero. But Helen tries to go in alone, but the kids stow away, which they foreshadowed when they were listening in on them fighting, that Violet has previously made them invisible to spy. So this is also kind of teased earlier.
2: This is Johnny, that he's not going to let, you know, Reed and Sue go off without him joining the team.
3: Yeah, and Violet goes along just because she's the oldest sibling and has to look out for Dash. But at least she had the wherewithal to hire a babysitter. Because once they find out, they're like, don't worry, we found somebody. She's like, all right, who'd you get? And it's like this... I guess, classmate of Violet who's in over her head as, as she'll find nope. out. But then Syndrome has Bob tied up, and he mentions that, you know, there's a government plane. We get the cliched superhero torture sequence. We get the scene from X2 with the missiles going after the plane.
0: Yeah, and uh, this was another cut character, wasn't it? Wasn't this not supposed to be Mrs. Incredible dry or Helen driving this plane? This was supposed to be someone else who actually ended up dying?
3: Yeah, it was supposed to be the guy that she called to get the plane. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which would have been, again, uh, way dark, but it would have been something that the characters in the film realized could happen to them, too. So Brad Bird really wanted it. He really wanted it. He fought to keep it in. Disney or Pixar was not budging on it. I do think that something is lost without that character. But again, I don't want this movie to be any longer.
2: I I think 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 the plane scene works so good. This is the. Oh, it looks amazing.
3: Yeah. No, but I'm talking about the edge this movie has. Like, she openly says there's kids aboard and Syndrome does not care.
2: No, oh, and that's what Mirage... And the verbiage that they use in here is all proper. It's all exactly what they use from a military and from an aeronautical standpoint, so I love that. And just the intensity of her, you know, we're bunny spiked, Roger, Niner, Niner. It's just, that level is just spiking, and the adrenaline is going, and you don't really... And Violet can't do it. You know, it's that, that teenager, that angst of, oh, my God, I have this ability, but I can't do it when I need to do it.
3: Yeah, which is also a reference to the Fantastic Four, because Sue is, like, objectively the most powerful of all of them, mm-hmm. even though her power is primarily defensive. But also the, the animation on Bob when he realizes that his wife and kids are presumed dead, because you hear the missile hit and the static cuts, and he grabs Mirage and is about to pull a Bane and break her in half. But he yeah, can't. You know
2: that he loses it.
3: Yeah, and even in that moment, he can't bring himself to do it. I mean, look, Edna is as silly a voice as what Tom Hardy did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's even that that moment of you you see the dot on the little radar go off. So obviously, you don't think they're going to die. But within the context of that scene, they lead you to believe pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. But they they parachute down. And Dash has the "We survived, but we're dead"
2: line. Hey, Dash. <laughs> Even the kids they get a good performance out of,
3: yeah, and, and I don't think these kids were trained actors, really. You know, it's not like they got—I uh, don't know—who was a popular like Daniel Radcliffe. I don't know who else who else would have been big around this time. I'm alone. Um, Macaulay, Macaulay was like I'm in his thirties. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, true.
3: Dash has mouth voice, slick back hair. Might have been Tom Felton. I don't know.
2: And, and this is when you see that there's still some work to be done in in the human animation because when they're wet. Yeah, th- th- this is a scene where just, it doesn't look good, and I'm glad that it gets past it quick, because that wet hair is the only real low point for the animation for me.
3: And it's also got that, their skin has that plastic type of look, because it's translucent with the water. Yeah. But they get out of it, because she stretches herself into a speedboat to get away with Dash's feet, are the engine. They get to a cave, and we get my favorite scene in the movie, where she says, these people will kill you. Like, this is not a Saturday morning cartoon. So I like that they're they're openly acknowledging that there is a danger component to this movie because it's so rare that they do that with kids superheroes.
2: The kids, that's the thing. It's you know, Fantastic Four. They're all adults. You know, some of the comics, Johnny is you know a teenager, and Sue Reed. I don't want to talk about that age difference because it's fucking creepy. It's always been you creepy.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's always creepy.
2: You know, but but Johnny's always been still somewhere between like eighteen and twenty four. You know, just a young smart ass. These are. not kids kids
3: she tells them to stay in the cave while she goes to look for Bob and she we get to see you know people would be talking about wokeness now where she she saves him and there's also that little moment of her addressing her middle-aged when she looks in the mirror yeah so it's really quick like it doesn't linger but it's it's there
0: yeah 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 that was a big deal when it when it when it happened too I, I remember that this was a huge scene that got a lot of play but brad bird said that you know he sometimes he would catch his sisters in the mirror doing this and i thought it was a nice way to comment on body image at the time it's a ballsy thing to do in a pixar movie again we're, we're dealing with way adult themes here but um it works in this situation because of how quick it is and how it's not in your face
2: it's funny though when you think about it because you know with Bob, that's kind of the central part of the story is he feels out of shape mm-hmm. and he's not who he used to be. But you do it to a woman and oh my god. Yep. You know, especially with Mirage on the other side yeah. and who she you know, what she looks like. She
3: manages to rescue Bob, well Mirage technically is the one to disarm the device. Bob goes in for a kiss as a thank you and Helen witnesses it. So we got some artificial tension here that kind of reaffirms Helen's thoughts of infidelity, but they they resolve that pretty quick. Like, this doesn't linger for the last 30 minutes of the movie, thankfully. Exactly. Bitch out. And then, as they're escaping, we see Dash and Violet, you know, manage to break their way in. Family gets together. We get a cool action sequence where they're having to run away from the guys on the little flying saucers. You get the, at the time, revolutionary animation of Dash running on water for a considerable length of time. Like, it... I'm sure that sequence took months to animate in and, up, in and by itself.
2: I want to point out that the sound design, which has been kind of, you know, ignored. But in this sequence specifically, I think the sound is, is fantastic. Like that pitter-patter of him on the water and just trying to figure out the right way that it's going to sound. At the same time that the explosions, the whoosh of Violet with her, with her force field and everything else. They really some good Foley work.
3: And this is where you finally see Violet actually use the force field to its fullest potential.
0: Yep. They've been teasing this the entire movie. I think it works here when it actually finally happens. You know, this is something that they've been building towards. And that's one thing I do like about what Brad Brad Bird does with this script is he sets things up and he pays them off. This is a nice payoff because originally her force field didn't work and she felt bad about that. And here she finally gets it to work and it's a feeling of accomplishment for her.
2: It's just the
3: first time you see the family actually use their powers in a superhero context as a group. This is why the Fantastic Four, why I've always been disappointed at the other attempts, because like even in the 05 one, when they fight Dr. Doom in a fucking back alley, if I'm remembering that movie correctly, like they don't use their powers all at once, really. That's the cool thing about the Fantastic Four, is them actually being a team building off each other. But Syndrome crashes the party and realizes there's a whole family of supers, as he says. Uh, and he turns into that rancid fanboy. You know, he turns into his childlike self again because he's still a kung nerd at heart at the end of the day. Feel that one. <laughs> he, he captures them once again. He says that, you know, when I save the day, I'm going to sell my inventions so that when everyone's super, no one will be. Which is kind of a commentary on, you know, individuality and how... As a society, we're sort of becoming, you know, uniform to everyone. Like, you can't be exceptional. You
2: can't be and exceptional. Is, it's the ruling class. It's participation trophy. It's, you know, you're not, the, but yeah, you're not allowed to be exceptional. You know, you can't, you can't have a first place. You can't have anybody better than anybody else. There's, and it doesn't, re, I mean, it takes aside being that the, it's the villain that's given this monologue, but, That's just one of the... It's a discussion that you would not have now, only 20 years later. And that's pretty sad.
3: So he leaves to go to Metroville and save the day. But the Pars manage to get away, thanks to Mirage uh, saving the day, which is alluded to earlier, because she confronts Syndrome about leaving me to die, basically. He's like, oh, I knew he wouldn't do it. But I'm sure even if there was a part of his brain where he's like, oh, he's going to break her in half. Then they cut to Metroville. Syndrome shows up with the OmniDroid. But the droid sort of malfunctions because, as we found out with modern day, AI sucks.
0: Yep, this is a little ahead of time, huh?
3: Yeah, where it recognizes the, the control switch on his wristband. So it shoots that, and because he doesn't have any superpowers, he gets taken care of pretty easily. While the PARs are doing everything in their power to get to Metroville in the classic National Lampoon's type of road trip from hell. Where, where they're talking about missing the turn, and, you know, take this exit, we get there when they get there. Like, this is great stuff, as far as the comedy goes. Speaking of comedy, we're going to talk about the most iconic scene from this movie. Where is my super suit? Uh, anyone yeah. who's ma- anyone who's married, it gets upset when your shit gets moved without you tell- without you being told. I felt this in every fiber of my being, just the anguish in Sam Jackson's voice as he's like, "You tell me where my suit is, woman."
2: I love that we don't actually ever get to see Honey. Also, I think mean, that's a nice part that is she's just always just off screen. That just lends something to that. This is just like an HR person at Pixar, that he got to do the voice, and then they decided to keep it in because they loved what she did so much. I don't know if anybody's ever seen the mashup with uh, the Battle of New York, or no, it's, it's at the end of Infinity War when sa- when they get dusted, and supposedly they modeled the helicopter crashing in that one identical to what he sees at this building. Oh, this is a funny. little homage to it. Um, but it's just, it's, 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 oh yeah, this is as quotable as it gets.
0: He comes in at the right time. I kind of – like I mentioned earlier, I do think we could have used a little more of Samuel Jackson in this movie. He, he's in here just enough to get a, a near-top bill credit, but his character is, is a fun time that I, I wish we saw more of.
3: Well, I don't say this to be mean. A little Sam Jackson goes a long way, especially in, in voiceover work. I, I think he's used just enough.
1: Hmm.
3: The fight is on in the streets of Metroville. And how is it that they cause less destruction than the entirety of Man of Steel?
0: (sighs) We're going to open this can of worms again, huh?
3: No, I I just like taking the pot shots when I can (laughs) get But I'm so happy there's no swirling vortex of death. There's no sky portal. (laughs) It's just, how do we stop the giant robot? (laughs) They have to do it as a team. Helen has to stretch out. Dash has to run away from it. So its targeting system changes. Uh, But Bob's able to destroy the robot's power source and they're hailed as heroes to the public once again. Superheroes are back in vogue, even though they just, it's the SpongeBob, we did it, Patrick, we saved the city, but everything's on fire. <laughs> city burns. And, <laughs> <laughs> and there's the two old guys. I don't know who those are supposed to be, but they're like, there's no school like the old school. So I don't know if they're supposed to be retired superheroes or not.
2: I was wondering if they were retired superheroes or if they were comic creators that Bad Brad Bird had animated, and I've, I don't know, but that's what I feel like. You know, is that supposed to be like a you know a Kirby reference or something of that sort? Yeah, Throw back to, be, to the golden and silver age.
3: Yeah, I it's supposed to be Jerry Jerry Schuster and Joe Siegel, right? Can't be Stanley and Jack uh, and Steve Ditko because they didn't want to be in the same room as each other after a certain
2: point. And <laughs> they'd be beating each other up.
3: The Pars get back in the limo and they're driving. They call the babysitter and they're like, "Oh, we we found a replacement." Syndrome's there with the plans to steal the baby and raise him as a sidekick. So it's kind of the Batman thing of I'm going to take an orphan and turn him into my own minister of justice. Let's hear where Jack-Jack's
0: powers manifest. Where I guess he can shape shift, he knows that the speak thing. Yeah. But he's on all- everything. <laughs> yeah, this was a step too far. I didn't like when, you know, he's turning into this little devil and shapeshifting and whatnot. This was stupid to me. I didn't like this.
2: This is a baby.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, tell me about it. <laughs> oh
2: shit. I'm a little removed. Matt can say, Yeah, this is my day. <laughs> oh, I,
3: I feel I felt this a lot but, like, the baby can change its, like, matter composition, I guess, because he can make himself lead. Yeah, it's stupid.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. It's one of those powers where it's, it's very loosely defined. Like, everyone else, Bob's super strong, she can stretch, invisibility, super speed. I, this is, like, getting into the, the Omega levels of X-Men, where it's like, okay, what limits do you actually have?
2: And I felt like they were just going to have Jack-Jack be fire, and somebody went, okay, we've had fun, you are going to get us sued. No.
3: Yeah, like they're like Jack, Jack, Johnny. Like it's pretty close.
2: Yeah.
3: But Jack manages to escape, and Syndrome is sucked into the plane engine.
1: <laughs>
3: Re- oh.
0: Reiterating his line of
2: no kits he... In a kids movie, he is sucked into a jet turbine.
0: Ah, we saw it in Raiders of the Lost Ark. We can see it here.
3: Maybe we saw it in Die Another Day.
0: Die Another Day too. Yep.
3: And we'll see it in Game Night, which is the first time they show the graphic nature of what happens. <laughs> if, if you've not seen that movie, it's it's so fucking funny when that guy gets sucked into the engine. It's like because it caught me so off guard. But yeah, like Pixar, they didn't really kill off their villains. They got arrested, or or in the case of Sid, they probably went to a psych ward, which is probably worse.
2: Pretty definitive, that you know, the way this goes, and I love this little, you know, that blaster Girl turns herself into a parachute, and it's like, oh, look at me, look at me, and the whole time, the plane's exploding, and, you know, fire and debris is raining down.
3: Uh. Yeah, you're like, I hope there's no people on that plane. <laughs> or at least very few. So, status quo seems to be restored, but superheroes are now allowed to be public again, but much like the Batman Begins proved, when the superheroes come back, the supervillains also come out of the woodwork, where one literally rises from the ground at... Dashes Track Meet, name the Underminer for your obligatory John Ratzenberger yeah. cameo.
0: Yeah, I hated every this Every six-star movie. Yeah, this was stupid. Like, I was not expecting another Ew. scene after the conclusion at the end of the last act. We did not need another tease for a, a future movie. It, was, it just seemed like an obligatory way to put John Ratzenberger here. I get it. He's a Pixar mainstay. From what I understand, Brad Bird was against it for so long, but he wanted to add this scene, and he thought, well, what the hell, might as well bring Ratzenberger in to do this. It's a fun little scene, I guess, but it was just a step too far.
2: This is his... The, it's the Fantastic Four number one reference. Yep, mm-hmm. because their villain and everything for the first one was the Mole Man, and that's exactly what this guy is right here. As
0: if we didn't need another. As if we needed another fucking Fantastic Four reference. They're already getting sued.
3: Yeah, the the un, I love that name, the Underminer.
2: It's like they're undermining,
3: undermining Fox.
2: Saying <laughs> mm-hmm. it's
3: yeah, like, but that's not- like I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you.
2: Mm. But I don't think this was. Specifically set up for for sequel bait. I think this was we're going to show that the family and the world has changed and we're accepting superheroes because other than Toy Story, we weren't doing sequels for Pixar. They did, they weren't doing it. They weren't that company. God, I wish they were still not that company. Not to tease next week, I just mean in general. But it's at that point, Pixar was one and done. They were telling original stories. So I just think this was a way that they were going to cap it that, hey, we're a family and we're a superhero family. And
0: the, and yeah, and they're still putting the mask on. They're still trying to hide their identity, I guess, in a way. But again, just a step too far.
3: Well, this has the thing of just because you wear a domino mask, no one can figure out who you are. Yeah, Worst exactly. Up, ever. At that point, just don't even wear a mask. Like, why right go through the effort?
2: Before um, the eye black. Nothing yeah. but I
3: uh, But I love that. I love this because it's the like a lot of comic books would end on a note like this, where it's like, "All right, on to the next thing." Um, it's sort of paying tribute to the serialized nature of this genre. But that—that's the last scene. You know, they put on their masks. He—he he does the Superman thing of ripping his shirt open. You see the logo, and credits begin to roll on The Incredibles. Long-winded discussion, but for a movie that's celebrating 20 years, I think it was worth to have that conversation, Garrett. Does absence make the heart grow fonder after all these years? On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you rate The Incredibles?
0: Wow, you're going to me first, huh? <laughs> Get the negative out of the way. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Ah, all right, well, almost 20 years has gone by since I watched this film. And you know what? I will say, even though I'm not like these two gentlemen, I don't have kids, I do see a lot of what Brad Bird's trying to say here. And yes, it did enhance my viewing of this film. I love the fact that we have a dad always expected to be the head of the family. He's the strong one. We have a mom who's always being stretched. He's stretching to keep the family together. We have a teenager who is so insecure, and yet we have her turn invisible. We have boys who want to win and are so hyperactive. Like Brad Bird's playing on all those things, and I enjoy the connection he's made in this film with those characters. I enjoy the voice acting in this. I thought. A lot of it was fun. I thought a lot of the line deliveries here are extremely fun. He has a lot of things to say here, and he says them in a very good way. I will say that, and there's some fun action here. However, I do stand by the fact that the movie's too long, and I do think that it just has a a climax too much, and I do feel that having Jack-Jack turn into the devil at the end was just dumb. However... It is a much better film than I gave it credit for. The absence does make the heart grow fonder. I am giving this a solid 8 on 10. I don't think it is worth a lot of the praise that it gets, but it is a very enjoyable time. So, yes, 8 out of 10 for me on The Credibles. All right, 8
3: on 10 for our resident pessimist, but looks like uh, his perspective changed a bit. Adam, what say you?
2: That's amazing that I can't remember the first time that I saw this movie. But I can remember the feeling that I got the first time that I saw it, and that was pretty much amazement. I think what Brad Bird did in the writing and directing of this was tell a story that respected decades of comics, obviously, superheroes, obviously, but also weaved in, as we've talked about, spy genre, Bond, so many other things. I love the Art Deco style. I love the colors that this movie uses. I, we didn't really talk about it. It was, you know, a little bit at the beginning, but I really, really like the score. I'm not a big fan of Gino either for a lot of things. In fact, I will say that I do really admire his directing effort if anybody hasn't got around to singing that. But I really like the score in this. I think it works. I do think it's homage, tribute, or ripoff to that original Bond theme, but it's, it's fun. It's, it's kinetic. And when I'm in line for the Incredicoaster at Disneyland, I like having that music kind of around. I love these characters. They feel real. They feel like adults and kids, and we're tackling real issues. The villain is one antagonist more than villain. It is smartly written. I think it's only the type of story that could be written as well when somebody has it for themselves, when they're not writing it for a studio, when he has an idea and he's been writing it for years and can keep polishing it and keep polishing it and keep polishing it because it's a one-off standalone film. This thing is amazingly done. It's not only one of the best animated movies, it is one of the best superhero movies that have come out. It is by far the best Fantastic Four movie that's come out, and that's not even close. It's one of the – and this is a Fantastic Four movie as far as I'm concerned. I've always said that, and I hold to it here. But I think it's one of the best superhero movies, if you look at it on its own merit. The voice acting is superb across the board. And other than a few little moments of animation, this thing is gorgeous to look at because of the style that they've chosen to use. I like Brad Bird as a director, though. You know, I'm, I'm a little biased. I still haven't seen. And it's because I've heard so much of it. And I keep getting told I need to watch it. And when people do that, I won't. But I'll get around to watching Iron Giant someday. But even something like Tomorrowland. (laughs) i love the it i love the ideas and the thoughts that he brings into his scripts because i think they're i think they're insightful and i think they say something about the world and i think this does as well it's not perfect but it is damn close to it this is an easy nine on ten it's amazing that 20 years later i can still feel amazed when i sit down to watch this movie
0: the increda coaster
2: yeah they took california screaming it DCA and they rethemed it to the Incredicoaster.
3: Was so DCA a different park from Disneyland?
2: You have Disneyland, then you have Disney California Adventure, which is right across the promenade. You you walk to one another. Okay.
1: Because in it's
2: Florida a,
3: there's four parks. That's why yeah, I
2: mean. it's it's not spread out like Florida. You literally walk from one into the other park.
3: Hmm. Well, speaking of walking, Garrett, I feel like that's what we should do since he said he likes Tomorrowland. <sighs>
0: <laughs> me and Adam have had this discussion privately, too. <laughs> we, 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 we've we've had its orgu- argument privately. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of privacy, I'm not going to be very – I'm
3: not going to have to put on a secret identity to say that I really like this movie. To the extent I do may surprise both of you, I think this is on my top five superhero movie list. If you twisted my arm and forced me to pick one. Five, I should say. And quite frankly, it's gotten better as I've gotten older. Like there's, there's more – of an appreciation I have for what it's saying as I've gotten older and started my own family and done all those types of things, but as a superhero movie, as a tribute, as a parody, as a representation of the best of what the genre can do, I think it is incredible, to pardon the pun. Voice acting across the board is great. Like, this is not... A lot of these movies, as great as they are with Pixar, maybe there's one voice I don't particularly care for or I feel stands out as a detraction. Here, I don't feel that. I think everyone is uniformly excellent. The action is great. I think part of the reason why a sequel was demanded as long as it was is because these characters are so well-defined, and their dynamics and their arcs are all given the pr- appropriate time of day. So as far as Pixar goes in their catalog, I put this right behind Toy Story 2 as, as my favorite Pixar movie, and I'm going to give it the same score I gave Toy Story 2. I'm giving this a 10. Wow. So that, that partially explains why I've been pushing to do this movie as long as I have
2: in any capacity. Like, I think it's that. It's that special.
0: Hmm. Man, I was not expecting that. Oh, I really well, want
2: to see the Goudreau family dressed up as The Incredibles for Halloween now.
0: Oh, that'd be perfect. I don't know. I'm not going to the last girl. I can tell you that.
3: I'm not turning that outfit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Adam, he needs a girl first. Don't forget.
3: <laughs> yeah, or I get remarried to a woman, which is no <laughs> sense. But speaking of the unexpected, we had to wait 14 years for a sequel. 14 years which is a lifetime for a lot of properties, especially nowadays. <laughs> like,
2: especially for animation, yeah. because your audience has grown
3: up.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
3: Yeah, it's a whole new generation. But Brad Bird came back. You know, the voice actors came back. It was still a Pixar production. Were either of you guys really excited for when Incredibles 2 was... Obviously, the announcement was one thing, but when you saw the trailer and you realized, oh, it's actually being made, what were your thoughts
0: You know what? A lot of indifference because I thought this movie said everything it needed to say. That's what I'm feeling now. When the sequel was coming out, I'm like, oh boy, this is far too late. But now as I get ready to watch it, I don't remember a thing about it. And I swear to God I watched it, but there's nothing about it I remember. So what I feel going in now is What else does Brad Bird have to say about the superhero genre that he hasn't said yet? Now, we do have 14 years of Marvel behind us. We have a whole bunch of years of Marvel behind us by the time he gets to the movie. 10 years of Marvel, to be precise. So maybe he has things to say about that. So I'm going in a little indifferent, boys. I got to say, what else does Brad Bird have to say about this genre that he hasn't said already?
2: So the point that this was coming out, did I want this movie for 14 years? Absolutely. Was I excited when this movie came out? You know what? Cars 3, Finding Dory, The Good Dinosaur, Monsters University, Toy Story 3 are the reasons that I wasn't. Yes, I said Toy Story 3. I felt that ever since Disney took over, they forced Pixar into a sequel studio, which is exactly why they were about to cut ties completely with Disney, and it went the way that it went. So I wanted this story. But because of the movies that they were putting out, and specifically because of the quality, the lack of quality in the sequels, I still love things like Brave. I think Brave is beautiful. Inside Out, I love watching as a family, but Good Dinosaur is unwatchable. Finding Dory is drek. Cars 2 is, I understand it's fun, but no, Cars 3 isn't bad. So I was really, really worried about whether or not this was just going to be something they were going to make just... Because, hey, we're going to make it, and we're, no, we're not going to tell anywhere near the type of captivating story that we got with this one. I'm in
3: the similar boat as Adam, even as someone who gave the original a 10. 14 years is a long time, and to Adam's point, a lot of Pixar's sequels were not doing it for me. And the trailer did not excite me. It looked like everything I was afraid this could have been, except for one joke about
2: new math. Oh my God. Yes. 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 Yes.
3: I'm like, okay, that's, that's really inspired. and very authentic, but everything else looks kind of like a rehash, but I gave it the benefit of the doubt because Brad Bird was coming back and it had been such a long time that I thought they were going to, you know, give it their all. So we'll, we'll talk about it next week. But like I said, 14 years, is a long time to, to gestate on a movie.
2: The nice thing about it was, and where I was excited, is I got to take my family to see it. Because my kids had grown up watching the DVDs, both my original letterbox version and then when I eventually bought the Blu ray. So to be able to take my family to see Incredibles in a movie theater, that part had me excited.
0: Now, gentlemen, didn't they also do an Incredibles comic as well?
2: Oh, they've done a couple.
0: Yeah, they have. Interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll. They'll tell stories in that universe, which is amazing because they're put out by
0: Dark Horse. Oh, wow. And did they also do, like, <laughs> mini stories like they did with Toy Story for a while? Or did they just like live on this movie and until the sequel came out?
2: They've done little short movies and stuff. They've done a lot with Jack-Jack. Okay. But, yeah, they got little shorts out there as well. Not nearly as much as they did with Cars mm. uh, and some of the monster stuff. But, yeah, there's some incredible shorts out okay. there.
3: You know, I'm trying to think who did the initial run. Was it Brian Michael Bendis or Straczynski? I think it was one of those guys. I think, think so, yeah. Because I want to say, I, I haven't read them, but... No, it was Mark Waid.
2: Person, Person on Grata now. Uh,
3: yeah, but Mark Waid wrote some of the best Fantastic Four comics. So yeah, yeah. It, it made sense to get him. But I, I, I never actually sought them out and read them. But that kind of spurns me to go look again. But until next week when we talk about The Incredibles 2... Honey, where's my podcast? Thank you, gentlemen. We didn't start this fight. Well, you didn't finish it either. Did you stop the Underminer from inflicting more damage? No. Did
0: you stop him from robbing the banks? No. Did you catch him?
3: No. The banks were insured. We have infrastructure in place to deal with these matters. If you had simply done nothing, everything would now be proceeding in an orderly fashion. You'd have preferred we do nothing? Without a doubt.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast.
0: Thank you, Mr. Incredible. You've done it again. Yeah, you're the best. No, I'm just here to help.
2: Join us next week for an entirely new review.
3: I'm taking in information. I'm processing.
2: And if you enjoyed this review, please head on over to www.percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast platform of choice to access the percolated media archives and hear our reviews of franchises such as Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Pirates of the Caribbean, Top Gun, the Batman DC films, Superman, and so many more. We appreciate what you did in the
0: old days, but those days are over. Come come come
3: come come, come much of it darling too much that is why i show you my work that is why you are here
2: and if you would be so kind please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice i am your number one fan it truly helps others find and discover our podcasts What is the main reason you were all forced underground? Ignorance. Perception. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan.
1: That was incredible. I mean, no pun intended. Sorry, Ed.
0: What's the last time you slept? Who keeps track of that?
2: The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is edited by Garrett.
1: Hey, you see that? Yeah, that's the way to do it. That's old school.
2: The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is voice narrated by Adam. Nice of you to drop by. Ha! Never heard that one before. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
1: No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I mean, sometimes I just want it to stay saved, you know, for a little bit. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean?
3: or their stick. And I think that's why so much of this movie has an authenticity to it with the voice acting. Yeah, I agree with that.
2: Did no, I mean, say something? It was, yeah, the, no, no, sorry. Yeah. The,
3: <laughs> against its own will because that cat really doesn't want to get down from that tree. Yep,
0: yeah, we talked sque- to can- Go ahead. <laughs>
2: So yeah, I was also excited to see Jason Lee in this. I was like, hey, cool, you know? That's I, I recognize him. I mean, but I also watched uh, was it? It wasn't *Fools Rush In*, but it was the other movie. It was the one with him and David Schwimmer.
0: Oh my God, what? Jesus! Yeah, I saw Christ. that.
2: In, I saw that in theaters because it was those two. So yeah, pity me. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, he does come up, and
3: as Adam said, he's late for his own wedding. He he almost walks in with the mask on, but Frozone takes it off.
0: Should I I do this in about eight months? Should I be late for my wedding? (laughs) Well, based on your travel
3: schedule, it wouldn't surprise
1: you.
0: (laughs) But we also have to remember, boys, this is also the very first Pixar PG-13 rated film. PG. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the first Pixar PG rated film. And I love how it's literally he's working in, uh, what's the company in Office Space? Oh, God. We mm. saw it when we went to Lollapalooza that year. Uh, Duffer Genetech. Muffin.
3: Duffer Muff- Muffin? Uh, under Mif- no, that's that's The Office.
0: That's The Office. Oh, that's The Office. Genitech?
3: Genco? Tech? Something like that. But it's actually that, where it's like these, these, but it's actually that, where it's like these, these. Put together it's office the, drones, the ultimate office drone type of environment where it's you know what Syndrome talks about, where if, if no one's super, then everyone is, or vice versa. He then cut to his wife, Helen, who is on her way to the principal's office because their son, dash according to the teacher, put a tack on his desk, but his video footage does not detect it because <laughs> he's too quick. <laughs> in a tech, in a tech, okay. No. I knew it was something like that. No. Uh,
0: <laughs> Here with this oldest daughter, what was her name again? I'm sorry.
1: Violet,
3: Violet. Violet.
0: yeah, the one with Violet. But his boss tells him to ignore it, and it escalates to the
3: point where he does what a lot of us who have had bad bosses want to do, literally throws him through a wall.
2: (laughs) Close. (laughs) Might have bumped chest, but good for Bob. Garrett, you've been close.
0: Don't get me started.
2: (laughs) Sorry, go ahead and finish your current job. and then we'll current <laughs> Exactly. <area.
0: laughs> Give me a week. I'll go into the stories.
3: <laughs> the Fantastic Four did not have a good movie in 1994, and they still have not 20 years later. So this is the best Fantastic Four movie that has yet to
0: be made. To be determined when we do that series.
2: Oh, there's no chance. I'm putting that on the table right
0: now. <laughs> From one person, maybe. As someone who has... We haven't talked about it yet, but there's you know there's a, a lot of scenes in True Lies that really, as good as that movie is at times, there are times when that movie can be really cut down because we go into infidelity things and things that you know have really no business being in that story until the, the real action hits. Here we are playing with the idea I'm of infidelity. I'm I'm echoing. Is that me? Because I'm turned up. No, you're good. Okay. You're good. Um, here we.
3: Were either of you guys really excited for when Incredibles two was? Obviously, the announcement was one thing, but when you saw the trailer and you realized, oh, it's actually being made, what were your thoughts?
0: All right, I
2: was of two minds about it. One, oh, sorry, go ahead, Garrett.
0: Yeah, let me go first, so you can you, go. you can bring it bring the podcast back up when uh, you start. Um, you know what?